Hey, Kara. Oh, we're recording. Hey, Chris. We're recording. Well timed. <laughs> this is what happens when I click away to another window just as you hit record and I miss the countdown. I know. So, yeah, today we, we are talking to Dr. Alyssa Crittenden again. We have again. the pr privilege. Well, it was a privilege to talk to her. It was unfortunate, uh, the circumstances we talked to her last year uh, for the memorial episode about Frank Marlowe when he passed, um, one of her uh, mentors, as we'll discuss a little bit more today. Alyssa Crittenden is an anthropologist and, like us, a human biologist who studies the relationship among behavior, reproduction, and the environment. And her research interests really fall in the domains of behavioral and reproductive ecology. But as we're going to discuss today, as her career has, has developed, it's taken on more and more dimensions. But she works with members of the Hadza community who are subsistence foragers in Tanzania to explore how the health of women and children is impacted by environmental change, political policies, and shifts in, in diet and composition. So we have a couple of articles to talk to her about today, although one of them is, is embargoed. So we're gonna we're gonna skip um, that. We're just gonna we're just gonna just we're just gonna, gonna hint around. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because it's essentially the same topic, um, mm -hmm. which is about really how you negotiate a long-term field site among uh, foraging populations and and changing politics for them, changing politics for us. Um, you know, more reflection on on how the discipline works, and and so we it's a, it's going to be a really exciting conversation. And and frankly, it was hard to write uh, a limited number of questions mm -hmm. about when I read both of them because they're so rich. Welcome to the Sausage of Science. All right, thanks. Nice to see you guys. <laughs> <laughs> For a moment, that sounded so unenthusiastic, and then the lag caught up. It's great to, to finally connect. You sent us two articles, including a 2020 chapter from Bonnie Hewlett's The Secret Lives of Anthropologists, Lessons from the Field. So obviously this book is something that's right up our alley because this kind of tells the stories that don't often make it into peer review publications. So that's really exciting. Uh, and your contribution is provocatively called Who Owns Poop? And, and other ethical dilemmas facing anthropologists who work at the interface of biological research and indigenous rights. And in it, you recount your anthropological origin story, uh, part of which we touched on when we did the memorial episode with the, the late Frank Marla, who was your mentor. And you highlight some of the relationships you yeah. developed uh, as you were becoming a scholar, uh, including some with ongoing friends and collaborators. So perhaps you could tell us a little bit about those relationships and how they influenced your career. That was a really interesting chapter, collecting biological samples. We don't, we don't really have many chances to write personal pieces like that. So I was really grateful for that opportunity. Um, I can tell you a little bit about, about those relationships. Absolutely. So I have worked with members of the Hadza community since 2004. I was originally introduced to the community by Frank Marlowe. Um, I was a visiting graduate student at Harvard at the time. I received my PhD at UC San Diego, but I, I did a lot of work. I kind of I spotlighted over at Harvard for a few years with um, Frank and his lab at the time. And when I started working in Tanzania in 2004, the work that I was doing was um, almost exclusively looking at women and children's foraging and looking at um, diet composition and energetic contributions of the diet and kind of just overall foraging behavior. And I 
was really interested in learning more about cooperative breeding and the evolution of childhood. So that kind of colored, I would say, the first um, maybe 10 years of the work that I did with the community. And in about, I'm trying to remember the exact year, probably in about, I think it was 2013. It was definitely 2013. I remember now because um, it was the first time that I had gone into the field and I had, I had left my infant at home. So I guess she had just, she just turned one. So it was a, it was a big, it was a big trip um, because I had left, I was leaving my baby at home and um, I was pretty, I was pretty emotional to be away from her. So I spent a lot of time talking to Hadza moms um, about breastfeeding, <laughs> which, um, you know, my whole role kind of in the community changed and my relationships changed when I became a mom for sure. And it was during that trip in 2013 that I um, was having a conversation with, with a longtime friend and an interlocutor under, under a tree. And I talk about this story in the chapter that I sent you to read in the book. And she was complaining about research that was being done in the community at that time. And she, she was complaining about the number of researchers who were coming in and particularly the number of biological samples that were being collected at that time. And she told me that she was tired of giving parts of her body and want to do it anymore. She was kind of tired. She was physically exhausted. And so she said, what do you think about not collecting any biological samples anymore? <laughs> think about not collecting saliva or fecal samples, or um, what do you think about just going back to kind of what you did when you were young, just hanging out with us and asking us questions and talking to us about our food and our kids. And it was a really intense conversation. I'm summarizing it here now, um, but it was really, it was really impactful. Uh, it certainly changed the trajectory of my career. And it was the beginning of a shift in my research that has taken um, quite a number of years to get going. But my research group and I now do community inclusive or community based work only. So we now only do stuff. Um, we only do projects that the community is part of from the beginning that they have input. Um, they have kind of have input in all of it from from the ground up or projects that they have specifically asked for, that they have requested. So it was, it was a big shift, um, but that's, that's kind of where we are now. It's led to a whole bunch of interesting new collaborations, and we have community data collectors who, since COVID, have been the only ones collecting data on some of these projects, which is also really unique and cool. So that's, that's kind of what's going on right now with me. I, I really loved your descriptions, not just of your interactions with the Hadza, which were clearly hugely influential to how you think about your research from the very beginning. And you describe how you know some of those changes that you you probably that that have crept into your work based on your interactions with them probably weren't weren't clear up at the beginning. Um, but I was also really, really uh, take, struck by how you described your relationships with other anthropologists and other scholars, and and how important they were. So just just as a just as a as a for example, right? Like I wouldn't be anywhere without my co-host right there. She's she, so <laughs> I I I think you describe some similar um, folks who who you you hold each other up. So I was wondering if you could speak a little bit to that. Oh, I'm happy to. So the first, the first person I have to talk about who I think um, I mentioned in, in the article, but we've become closer and closer as the years have gone on, particularly in COVID, is a collaborator of mine 
who is a member of the Hadza uh, community, and he's really more like more like family. Um, his name is Shani Msafiri Mongola. Um, and Shawnee and I became even closer during COVID. He was actually in the U.S. getting his master's degree in Indigenous Peoples Law and Policy at the University of Arizona when the pandemic hit. Um, so it was a really, it was a really interesting experience. We had worked for years to secure the funding um, for him to come over and get his degree, and he finally came over. And then at the end of the last year of his program, um, COVID hit. So he ended up coming to spend time with my family um, when we were all doing kind of the national shelter in place. And it was um, a wonderful experience for all of us to actually be able to have that time together. He just kind of moved in with my family um, for a while. And it was during that time that we decided at my dining room table um, that we were going to follow through with an idea that he'd had years before, which was to start a mutual aid organization. Um, and so we started the Olenakwe Community Funds during COVID from my dining room table. So it's a, it's, that's kind of a, a big um, thing that we're doing right now. And it's, it's an ongoing relationship. I haven't seen him um, since he returned home. I haven't been able to go back to Tanzania, but we talk regularly. We talk several times a week. He's currently in law school in Tanzania and Dar es Salaam getting his a law degree and working towards becoming a human rights attorney so that he can act on behalf of the Hadza community. So Shawnee's a big influence for me. Um, in terms of, of kind of my, my rearing, right, when I was growing up as a budding academic, um, there are several people that I, I mentioned in, in that chapter that's somewhat autobiographical. I wouldn't be anywhere without my doctoral advisor, uh, Margaret Schoeniger from UC San Diego, and um, another one of my advisors at UCSD, who is incredibly impactful, Shirley Strum. And both of them were just instrumental um, in, in my graduate education and in helping me kind of navigate, um, navigate not only the politics of academia and kind of the nuts and bolts of what this whole thing's about, um, but also really helped me better understand ways in which I could grow with my own research as a, as a scientist. I also, um, Frank was a huge influence. We've, we've talked a lot about that. Frank, of course, introduced me to the community. So I wouldn't have any relationships with the Hadza community if it weren't for Frank. Um, and I'm, I think also, I mean, I've had so many, but Nick Blurton Jones, who is uh, retired from, from UCLA, who was Frank's advisor, Nick has been really wonderful to me over the years. Um, I ended up driving his car years after he had stopped driving his Land Rover when we thought it was dead and it would never drive again, somehow I inherited that vehicle for years later. So we nicknamed it Babu. Um, we nicknamed it Grandpa because it had already been driving in Hadza land for 20 years. And then somehow we, we kind of stuck it together with like bubble gum and, <laughs> and I don't know, dental floss. And that thing was still driving out in the bush. So Nick has been wonderful. We're collaborating on projects right now. And Sarah Hurdy was also a wonderful um, influence for me and really provided a lot of emotional support um, when I started out. And she's still uh, just an amazing influence on the field and, and continues to be a source of great inspiration for me. So those are, those are just a few. There's so many more to mention, but I think those are the ones who really had an influence on me when I, when I started um, in, this, in this kind of this type of research. 
I really, uh, I liked your description of, of your advisor being open to uh, working with foragers, even though you didn't have anyone in your department at the time and, and, and uh, who, who had a connection. And so that, that, yeah. that, that's why I wanted, I wanted you to unpack that a little bit because oh, yeah, I'm there, happy was, to. <laughs> there was definitely a support system there that facilitated your entry into the field. Oh yeah, I tell I t I talk to my graduate students about this a lot. That you know, th sometimes you have to do things in an unconventional way um, to to make stuff happen. And so um, I got my PhD from UC San Diego, and Margaret Schoeniger had done some Hadza work at the time. She had done some previous work with Henry Bunn when she was at University of Wisconsin, and they had gone into the field together. But she didn't have any active field projects. Um, and I really credit Margaret with. Um, she was really the the engine behind me obtaining all of the um, kind of training that I did in nutrition, which was really critical to better understanding the evolution of human diet and, and forager diet in particular. Um, so Margaret said, you know, I love that you want to work with living humans. I think it's great that you want to do that. I don't have any active field sites. I am only working um, as a bioarchaeologist at the moment. So I'll give you three months to find a, a PI and a field site to take you. Um, and if you, if you can't do that, then I think I'm going to send you to Kenya to work with baboons. And I love baboons, nothing against baboons. I am super keen on baboons, but I was really interested in testing some of these um, hypotheses surrounding cooperative breeding. Um, so it required a human population at that time. So this was, this was old school, you know, I'm going to age myself, but this is, this is before you sent this stuff out via email. Um, and so I, I kind of filled up manila envelopes with my master's thesis and a cover letter, um, uh, a photo. I don't know what else I put in there, a, a polite, desperate plea to please take a graduate student to the field who is not their own and I mailed them out to all of these big superstars in our discipline. I threw the snail mail. I put them in the mail <laughs> and just kind of contacted all of these people cold. Um, and it was amazing. I, I, I had the best response. And some of the people who were my heroes and remain my heroes today and people who I've um, ended up collaborating with and whose work I admire, they responded. They all replied. <laughs> um, and I was in communication with several, several people. Uh, before it ended up that uh, Frank decided to to take me out. He had a big NSF project going. And um, I, he said, you know, I think we're a good fit. You're, you're only interested in looking at kind of women and children and food. And I'm not really interested in looking at women and children and food, but, you know, those sound important. So yeah, come on out. <laughs> I think that's a wonderful lesson for especially the younger generation folks listening to this podcast, that it never hurts to ask and to reach out to people Worst case scenario, either you don't hear back or they say no, and you still haven't lost anything. Uh, you've put yourself out there. Right. So I think that's really, really wonderful. Uh, so some interesting things in, in your chapter. Uh, you discuss an incident that involved field expediency uh, during your 14-month stay and first experience running a field site. And it's a rather poignant story uh, about what opened your eyes to the political ecology of diet and nutrition among the Hadza foragers. Uh, so can you tell us what you meant by field expediency and uh, why it's such an important lesson, but one that is kind of hard to teach? And then about the folks who ended up getting arrested by the end of this story. 
Yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty intense. This is again, why I was so grateful that Bonnie provided an outlet for this. Um, we had actually talked about this story uh, years ago. And when she was pulling together her edited volume, The Secret Lives of Anthropologists, she said, would you be comfortable sharing this story? And I said, yeah, let me, let me ask some of the community members if they're okay with me sharing this story and I'll get back to you. And um, the individuals who, who were involved in the story I'm about to tell, they, they agreed. Um, and in fact, they were really enthusiastic about the story getting out there because it was, um, well, we'll get into it, but it's, it's indicative of kind of a long, a long history that the community has um, with with the nation state in situations like this. So, so, so I decided to write about this story. Um, but, but before we get into that, sure, I can, I can talk about what I mean by field expediency, which is all related. Um, I think for those of us who have field-based projects that may be in places with um, kind of limited infrastructure, or in this case, you know, there weren't really any paved roads in the region where I was working when I first started working out there. There weren't even really any dirt roads. Um, there's still no electricity, no running water. You know, you're, you're very remote. So we used to make the joke that you have to put everything in the car, everything you need to survive, you know, has to get packed into the Land Rover, tied to it. Uh, I don't know, it was strapped on top, like where, wherever you can find a crevice to kind of to carry everything out that you need, including, including water. Um, so what this taught me, um, so Frank was, when I first went into the field with Frank, he was good um, in terms of teaching those of us who, who he trained and who went into the field with him initially, he taught us some of the, some of the basics, you know, he taught us about um, how to pack the car and what you might need in terms of food and supplies. And so he, he was able to teach us that stuff. The stuff that you can't teach that you just learn through experience is how to be flexible and how to solve problems really quickly uh, with limited resources. So when I talk about field expediency in that chapter and I, I talk about it, it's really just this flexibility in terms of responding to whatever life throws at you out there, whether it's a whether it's a social a social challenge or, or an ecological challenge, um, you know, storms come up or whether your car breaks down in the middle of nowhere, which has happened to me, um, literally in the middle of nowhere, what do you do? <laughs> You're out of spare tires. I mean, you, you just have to kind of figure it out. And I think that it's a really valuable skill that um, really would benefit, I think has certainly benefited me. It's built my character and has been useful far outside of field contexts. I think it's it's just useful in general. So I I think it's um I really am grateful for the opportunity to have had all of those calamities happen in the field, I guess, because I think in a way it's led to resilience and I think it kind of makes all of us better field scientists when we have to go through that stuff. Um, so that's what I meant there. And in terms of the story that you asked about, Kara, that's a Ooh, that's a doozy. Um, but I'm I'm happy to share it. So, I guess a little geographic history might be useful if that's okay. Um, so the Hadza community um, reside in northern Tanzania, and I think you know many people in our discipline, many folks are, are familiar with this with this community. They're a mixed subsistence foraging community, and up until very recently, they were collecting um, the majority of their food from undomesticated wild plant foods and animal products. So game meat, honey, 
um, and a variety of, of plant foods uh, were targeted. And they live in um, northern Tanzania, as I said, kind of south of, of the Serengeti. And Hadza, members of the Hadza tribe live all around Lake Iasi, which is an alkaline lake in that region, which is their, their home territory. But researchers over the past, pretty much over the last 50 years, have primarily worked with communities on the east side of the lake. Um, and there are a variety of reasons for this. Um, they're easier to get to, they're easier to physically locate. And um, it's also easier to get permitting access, government access to, to work on that side of the lake with um, kind of the Eastern Hadza as, as they refer to themselves as. Um, now there have been groups who have worked on the Western side of the lake, myself included. Um, many of my colleagues have worked over on the west side of the lake, but it's not as common. During this particular uh, field season, during this particular trip, I was, a, I was a graduate student and I was in charge of the project. And it was the first time that I had been kind of acting PI of the project. And it was a, a team that had been kind of set up on that side of the lake that Frank had known, Frank Marlowe had known for years. And um, we had permits ready to go. We were, had been living with uh, members of um, several camps. We'd been there for a really long time. And one day I come back from camp and three men have gone missing. And um, the short of it is that they were picked up uh, by an anti-poaching, a private anti-poaching unit that had been sent out from a professional hunting concession company. So this was a, a private kind of tourist um, uh, it's, it's really, they're, they're tour operators, uh, but you can do private hunting safaris with these companies and they take you out to these beautiful camps that they've set up in the bush. And they had a permit uh, for their hunting concession to operate in this area. And it happened to overlap um, with Hadza kind of territory where they were hunting and gathering. Um, and they were picked up for poaching, which has happened many times um, in the historic record, and it's been written about regularly. There's some really good um, summaries of a lot of these, uh, these stories. And if you're, you're really interested in learning kind of a deep history of the area, I would point listeners to Nick Blurton Jones's book, The Demography of the Hadza. Um, and in that book, he, he talks a lot about the history of the region and a lot of the political history of the region that was really relevant to, to sort of this, this story. So they were, they were picked up for hunting, which was not actually illegal in that area, but it was a, a private uh, poaching company. So what ensued over the next few days was kind of a mad dash um, to multiple local jails in order to find the three who had been arrested. We finally found them um, three days later and it was a whole, whole nother tale um, about how we were able to, to, get them out of jail. I was with um, several community members and we had to jump through a bunch of hoops, but we were able to finally get them out of jail. And this is one of the stories that ends well. This is one of the stories that has a happy ending. Um, many of the stories that you will read about in historical accounts are very similar and they do not have happy endings. Um, and the individuals picked up for poaching are not um, released from, from jail. So it's um, it has a happy ending. It ended on a on a positive note, but it most certainly uh, impacted the way that I started thinking about data collection and the way that I started thinking about my role as a researcher, um, kind of in these spaces where you have 
communities who are marginalized, um, intentionally so in this case, by the nation state, um, and you are there as a researcher, it just kind of makes you start really thinking differently about what the roles and responsibilities are um, in these situations. Yeah, I, I, I took all of that away from that story. And, and it really, uh, j- just, to, just to reiterate what you just said in a different way, the idea of studying foragers as any sort of representation of the past is extremely problematical as soon as we add in what is happening around them in the political ecology of everything else, which which I think you do really, really nicely. And in, in fact, I think you said you had to break down your whole research site to go and, and, <laughs> yeah. and deal with that at the time, which, you know, kudos, yeah. you know, as a grad well, student, a little stressful. Yeah. That was really stressful. And also, I, all I had, <laughs> that was very stressful. Thankfully, Frank was was really understanding. Um, and so was NSF <laughs> about that. But we, yeah, we had a, we had a delay there. Um, and we, yeah, it was, again, field expediency, right? You figure it out, mm-hmm. you, you figure out how to prioritize what matters. Um, and safety, safety matters, safety matters before uh, data collection every time. <laughs> yeah, it, it was very impactful in terms of, of kind of orienting my research philosophy from there on out. And um, I, it was a great opportunity to write about it. I, I hadn't talked about it publicly um, really ever, kind of only, you know, in private situations. Uh, I've talked about it a lot, a lot with my Hadza friends. You know, it's kind of legendary out there. We, we talk about it still to this day. Um, but it was, I had not had an opportunity to share that story in any kind of public forum or setting um, because we, you know, there's really not any place for those types of stories when you're in the peer review process necessarily, unless you work hard to find spaces for those stories. So it's, um, it's also something that has been useful in terms of being a graduate mentor and teaching graduate students is I try to find those types of, those types of, of reflexive pieces from from members of um, you know colleagues in our field and try to have my students read those and reflect on those and talk about them just so they can get a different perspective on everything that goes into this career that, that we're choosing and, and what it means to do to do this type of work I agree those those uh, of the kinds of events are not the kinds that we we ever want to have happen in our field work but they they become the linchpin around which our understanding of our of our field site often turn. Um, I want to toggle a little bit to some of the granularity of, of what you you do do right. So we're talking a little bit uh, from a I wouldn't say a ten thousand <laughs> point view, obviously, because this it's actually the opposite. We're like so down in the weeds that you haven't even been able to 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 write about it uh, as as sort of holistically as it sounds like you would write, but but, but you, you have written about uh, the diet, nutrition, and gut microbiome stuff that, that you've been investigating, and it's fascinating. So I want to ask you about the importance that you, uh, of fiber uh, in, in investigating diet and, and gut microbiome. You, you note that uh, Hadza men and women consume different foods in differential abundance, even though they actually have the same of food available. So I wonder why, is there an adaptive significance to, to that that you found? 
So yeah, thank, thanks for, for the opportunity to talk about fiber. And so I'm, I'm happy to talk about why I think fiber is so cool and so important. As a person with, with a background in training in nutritional anthropology and nutritional chemistry, I'm really, I've always really been interested, one of kind of the driving questions of my research has always been how diet composition and food choice um, impacts health and reproduction specifically. So spending so much of my time working with mothers and their infants um, around the world in different contexts, what moms are eating is really interesting to me. Um, and particularly during times of reproduction. So one of the things that we, my research team and I, so my colleagues and I had been really interested in investigating was kind of looking at the impacts of a really high fiber diet. And so one of the things that we know about the Hadza diet, and one of the things that's kind of most well published about the Hadza diet is the really high fiber content of a lot of the plant foods that are consumed regularly. And one of the things that we found that was really interesting um, when my colleagues and I investigated kind of the metagenome um, sequencing, so kind of investigations of the gut microbiome years ago, is we found that one of the biggest, most interesting takeaways was this, the Hadza gut microbiome is adapted for complex carbohydrates. So essentially adapted for this diet um, that they're consuming, meaning that it, that it may be that essentially the commensal bacteria in their, in their guts um, may be allowing them to digest certain types of high fibrous foods more efficiently. So this is really interesting to someone who thinks about reproduction. And it's really interesting to someone who has been thinking about tubers, um, underground storage organs, like I have for decades of my life, um, because there's this kind of raging debate in the literature about whether or not tubers, a raging debate, right? I say this for those of us who are super into tubers. There's this super exciting debate about tubers, about whether or not um, they are these kind of smoking gun food in human evolution and whether or not they are a food that provides a decent amount of energy. You know, we know that they, um, we know that they're consumed all year long in environments where, where they're available. And we know that kind of every uh, great ape consumes, uh, well, certainly chimpanzees we know have consumed tubers and we know that they're, they are, um, they store water, which is another kind of important part of the narrative. My advisor, Margaret Schoeninger has often talked about it as the, the canteen hypothesis that tubers don't get enough attention for actually carrying water. So, you know, there's been a lot of research on um, Richard Wrangham has, has talked about tubers as being really significant in terms of the, the control of fire and in terms of the evolution of cooking. And so, they're this really important food, but understanding how the kind of gut responds to a diet composed of tubers was really interesting and, and a really kind of key finding in a lot of our work. And I think for me, it made it really, it was great that we were able to do kind of a, a repeat project on, on looking at diet composition and gut microbiome. Um, also because they're, you don't get tubers all the time anymore um, due to issues of climate change and kind of impaction on the environment. It depends a lot on rainfall and now on the region where you're researching. Um, it used to be kind of ubiquitous. You, you would see digging sticks in any Hadza camp that you visited and you could go out and get tubers kind of almost any time of year. Um, it's not that way so much anymore. So, so this type of work on, on tubers, I think it was, it was really, um, it was great that we were able to work and do that at that time. 
And now the community has other types of nutrition questions that they're requesting, um, which um, unfortunately is not, not as exciting about in terms of fiber, right? But it's more exciting um, in terms of kind of every other domain of research because it's driven by the community. And also it's hopefully these data will have utility um, moving forward. But yeah, nobody seems super stoked on fiber like me. So I thank you again, Chris, for that. So give me a chance to talk about how important it is. In thinking about your research, collecting poop, right? And the title of that chapter was "Who Owns the Poop," right? So right. I, I wonder if I collected saliva samples from Pentagon, which doesn't sound like it's even remotely similar. But one of the issues that I had was I had to collect it while they were in their church clothes on Sunday at church, and one they thought it was gross to spit in a tube, and two the timing. <laughs> was a little bit problematical. And as a grad student, I was really stressed out about not stressing them, but trying to find a way to data in a, in a sensitive way, but that was also useful. I'm guessing you have similar issues uh, collected from the Hadza, maybe. I wonder how you have approached um, the development you have of culturally appropriate sample collection protocols for, for, for sampling poop? Oh, well, thank you for that question. Um, so I think, so I don't, so the chapter that I, that I sent to read, so, which is called Who Owns Poop, um, kind of outlines, it, it details my willing departure um, from, from not only microbiome studies for the time being, but also from biological sample collection at the moment um, that is not requested specifically by the community. So I think that's that's where I have trended. Um, and I, for the reasons sort of that I've, that I've kind of talked a little bit about today, but in, it's really influenced my work in a different way. And one that I think is directly related to what you just talked about in terms of collecting biological samples from Pentecostals. I actually think it is very similar in that you know, as human biologists, this is this is what we're interested in doing, right? We need biological samples um, in order to answer a lot of the questions um, that we're interested in answering. And so how do you approach this in, in diverse communities? And how do you do so in a way that is not only respectful of the participant populations, but in the instance of, of kind of my, kind of in the example of my work with the Hadza is is meaningful and significant to the community, which is what they've asked of my research team moving forward. They have different relationships with other research teams, um, so I can only speak about the relationship that my working group has with the community. But I think that it has led to a lot of open dialogue uh, in our discipline about ways to go about this, and so I think there is an ongoing kind of discourse happening in the field about how we collect all biological samples, whether it be saliva, urine, um, feces, whether it's, it's you know, um, whether you're collecting blood samples or what, whatever it is that you're, that you're collecting, how you do so in a way that really centers safety and comfort and at least in the case of indigenous communities has utility for the participant population. So there's, there's a lot being written right now. And I, I also just wanna really point out that the AGHB toolkit has been remarkable in this capacity in terms of um, really providing resources to, to scientists, to junior scientists who are starting to think about these things going into the field. And I would say um, there's a couple of things that I've done recently that provide some good 
ways to kind of enter into this dialogue. Um, Tanya Broche and I uh, kind of led a, a, a big paper um, with Monique Bogerhoff Mulder was, was the corresponding. She was, um, and we, as a whole, there's too many co-authors to mention, all of them know who they are. <laughs> there were so many of us, more than a dozen, but we got together and we, we wrote a piece on kind of the ethics of cross-cultural research. And um, it, it talks a little bit about sample collection in there, but not explicitly. There are other types of ethics kind of primers coming out on ways to do this. And one of them is to have community buy-in from the beginning to do things like pilot testing your methods, to do things like have community representatives help you go through all the protocols. Um, it is more time consuming, but it is not only ethically the way, the way to go, but it ends up, um, it, it leads to better science. It leads to science that, that is um, stronger um, when you have participant communities who are comfortable with the whole process and engaged in it. And I've talked a little bit about this. I'm one of the faculty fellows for an NSF methods camp that's um, run by Russ Bernard and Amber Wutich right now. And they, for, for any students who are really interested in gaining some more expertise in some of these methods, I would encourage them to apply for that as well um, because there's some real kind of hands-on um, examples that are given in that curriculum. And so that's, it's, a, it's an open dialogue right now. And I, I'm glad that you asked about it because I think that it's something that, particularly graduate students are really eager to talk about. Um, and they really wanna talk about ways in which they can make sure that their science is respectful of boundaries and is, is kind of centering community needs. Um, and there are a lot, the, another thing, let's see, what else could I point to that's a good one? Um, Katie Hind and EA Quinn talk a lot about kind of the ethics of collecting breast milk. So that's, that's another one. And that's one that's, that's very near and dear to my heart as I work with, with Hods and moms. And so there, there, are, there are scientists um, in our field who are taking kind of the, the logistics, these methods and methodologies really seriously and, and are really pushing the field forward in a, in a fantastic way. So I, I just want to, I want to be part of that group. I want to be part of that movement. And I, and I think it's, it's encompassing. And I think that's where we're headed. I think that's a, some lovely shout out to some folks doing really important work in the field and not easy work, honestly. So you described the arc of your career and some of the shifts your career have taken over the, the past decade. Uh, and so this is a question that we've actually never asked folks is where do you see yourself in another 10 years? Oh, that's, that's a, that's a great one. Um, I love anthropology. I can't, I can't quit anthropology. So I will always be, um, I will always be an anthropologist and I will always be a human biologist. I'm too interested in understanding how people and their environments um, interact. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm just still captivated by so many questions. So I will, I will still be working with the Hadza community, I think, um, I would predict, but I think that the kind of the, the, the tempo and the tenor of that work continues to evolve, it continues to shift. And most of the work that's happening now is through the Olenakwe Community Fund, the mutual aid that, that the community has kind of started and is seeking um, solicitation for, you know, they're, they're soliciting funds for that right now. Um, so a lot of the work in terms of working with kids in childhood is sort of headed that direction in terms of educational sovereignty. And the work that um, my graduate students and my collaborators and I are doing right now involves only community data collectors kind of from the beginning. And it's work that um, particularly moms have requested in terms of better understanding um, Thank you.
what changes in access to biomedical care mean for So it's a joining us today because she's amazing and she did it with really terrible internet circumstances.